0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in Acts 24 this morning. We will be looking at verses 1 through 23. Give you a minute to turn there. Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 23. And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude." But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the, and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward Both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs." Thus ends our reading of God's piercing word. May all who hear it find that, like Paul, they too have become a plague to an unbelieving world. When archaeologists are doing a dig, their, their, their hope is that they will find some great artifact that's worthy of note, Right? Perhaps an ancient inscription referring to a king, or better yet, something that was once worn by that king, such as a crown or or a signet ring. But most often what they discover are are the things of everyday life, the things of the common people. And yet it is these everyday things that, that give us a front row seat to the culture of that day. In 1857, something unique was discovered when a group of archaeologists were unearthing an ancient boarding school on the Palatine Hill near Rome. There they found one of the earliest depictions of the crucifixion of Jesus. It was etched in one of the stone walls. Now, now the dating of this depiction is uncertain, but it's, it's estimated that, that to be anywhere between the 2nd and 3rd century A.D., That means that this depiction could have been made less than 100 years after Jesus had been crucified. And yet, here's the thing. This depiction was very, very crude as it was a form of graffiti most likely etched by one of the schoolboys of that time. In fact, take a look at this slide. There you see the Uh, On the right-hand side, I guess that would be your left, wouldn't it? You you see the actual etching, the carvings. And then on the other side, you see um, a clearer picture of what what was actually etched. And, And what do you see? You see a boy with his hand raised, worshiping this figure on a cross. Only this figure has the body of a man and the head of an ass. And then scrawled underneath... Was the writing of a youthful hand, and the words are as follows: Alexamenos sebatai Theon. Alexamenos worships his god. Now, now, this depiction was obviously done in mockery. Somebody did not think very highly of Jesus, nor were they very kind to this Alexamenos. It kind of makes you wonder how much. This boy was picked on and tormented during his years at that boarding school. But there's more to this story. For this wasn't the only graffiti that was found at that boarding school. No. In the next chamber over, there was discovered a second inscription, and that inscription read, Alexamenos Fidelis. Alexamenos is faithful. What does it look like when an uncompromising Christian life meets up with an unbelieving and uncompromising world? That is a question we will be trying to answer today as we as we look at Paul's trial before Governor Felix. Now, now, there's a lot that we have to cover in this trial, so I want to be as brief as I possibly can. And describing what led up to this trial. So here's the Cliff Notes version of what's been going on. Remember, it was the Apostle Paul who had been arrested in Jerusalem after he was being accused of trying to defile the temple. A mob had dragged him out of the temple courts and had almost beaten him to death. And if it hadn't been for the Roman tribune Claudius Lysias, Paul most likely would have died. And yet Paul was arrested instead. And because Paul was a Roman citizen, he had certain rights that protected him. Well, some of the Jews who were angry at Paul, they decided to conspire with one another in order to take Paul's life themselves. And so there were more than 40 men who who bound themselves to an oath that they would neither eat or drink until Paul was dead. And yet word of this conspiracy had leaked and eventually Claudius found out and so in his wisdom he 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 had secretly sent Paul in the middle of the night to governor Felix over in Caesarea that way he could have his case tried away from Jerusalem away from those 40 men and as a means of protection do you remember he had surrounded Paul with 470 roman troops Well, Paul made it to Caesarea. Nothing bothered him. And this leads us to today where we now see Paul's case being tried before Governor Felix. And so as we as we go through this text, as, as we look at these scriptures, I want you to have in the back of your mind the question that I had asked previously. What does it look like when an uncompromising Christian life meets up with an unbelieving, and uncompromising world? Keep that question in mind. Let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 4. And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and his spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. And so it had been five days since Paul had arrived in Caesarea, and now the high priest Ananias, along with some of the elders, Had made this trip in the hopes of condemning Paul before the governor. Now, what you have to understand is that these men, they were the movers and the shakers of the Jewish people. They were men of means, they were men of power. And that's why they didn't come alone. No, they had brought with them a spokesman, this man named Tertullus. You see, these Jewish authorities, they wanted Paul dead. But they knew that the only way that they could accomplish their goal would be if the Romans would convict him and then sentence him to death. You see, all their attempts on Paul's life had failed. And they knew that they would never get another chance at it now that Paul was under the protection of Rome. And so it would have to be through the Roman courts that they would plead their case. And yet here's the problem. The Romans were not fit, nor did they care to settle disputes concerning the Jewish religion. And so they needed to make their case about something that the Romans would care about. And that's where this Tertullus comes into play. This spokesman whom Luke describes here, he was their their high-powered attorney. He was a lawyer by profession. And he was good at what he did, as we'll soon see. For for he was both a gifted speaker and he was politically shrewd. I mean, this man, he knew how to present a case to the Romans that that they would actually care about. Notice how how Tertullus begins his case. He, He does so by buttering up the governor, right? Through you we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. I mean, wow. Talk about laying it on thick, huh? I mean, Tertullus, he, he was trying to highlight how good this Felix was to the people of Judea. But what's ironic about this is that the exact opposite had been true. The, the, the peace that Felix brought came by means of cruel punishments. The, this governor, he kept things under control by instilling fear through the use of spilled blood. In all honesty, the majority of the Jews hated the guy. And yet the, the, the Jewish elite, men like the Sadducees, well, they, they loved Governor Felix. And that's because they loved their seats of power. And when Rome was strong... Well then, their power wasn't threatened. <clears throat> but there's more to Tertullus's words than just stroking Felix's pride. He had another purpose behind them. You see, when when Tertullus was emphasizing that through Felix they enjoyed much peace, he he was doing so because the charge that he was about to bring against Paul, was that he was a disruptor of the peace. And so by honoring Felix as a man of peace, this only made his accusation against Paul that much more heinous. I told you, he's a good lawyer. And you have to remember, these these Romans, they didn't care. They weren't interested in selling disputes about the Jewish religion. And so this Tertullus, this this shrewd attorney, he had to bring about a different indictment against the Apostle Paul. He he had to turn the religious accusations of the Sadducees into charges of sedition. That Paul was an enemy of the state. Let's see how he did this. Look at at verses 5 through 9. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Now, there was really only one accusation that Tertullus was making, even though there were several sub-accusations that fell underneath the umbrella of the first. And, and, and that one accusation was this, that Paul was a plague. That he was a menace to society. The Greek word that Tertullus used here is Loimon. And it means a a pestilence or a pest. It is a plague that that spreads, bringing only death and destruction. And when this word loimon was used to describe a person, it, it carried all the negative connotations that pestilences and plagues have. In other words, Paul was this public menace, this one who was destructive and capable of infecting other people through his dangerous, dangerous teachings. And this had been seen throughout the various riots that had broken out through the, through the different cities that Paul had visited over his years. I mean, think back to Thessalonica, where the Jews had started a riot and attacked the house of Jason in an effort to kill Paul. Or, how about the great riot in Ephesus led by the craftsmen of the Artemis cult? Tertullus was making the claim that the only reason that those things occurred was because of this plague named Paul. And actually, this seems plausible, does it not? For Tertullus is right. Wherever Paul went, there always seemed to be dissension, particularly within the Jewish community. Surely, Paul was a common variable. But not only did Paul cause riots, but he was also the ringleader of this strange sect of the Nazarenes. In other words, Paul was leading a faction of men who who called themselves followers of this Jesus of Nazareth, who, by the way, had been crucified by the Roman government roughly 27 years prior because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And so according to Tertullus, Paul was the head honcho of this cult. A cult who was following a man, who was convicted of the, under the charge of sedition. And then finally, Tertullus mentions the incident in Jerusalem where Paul had tried to desecrate the temple of God, where according to the claims of these Jews from Asia, Paul tried to bring a, a Gentile into the inner courts and to substantiate Tertullus's assertions, we see that the rest of the Jews in that courtroom, they, they joined in an agreement. They, they claimed to be witnesses of what went down near the temple. So basically, Paul was being charged with sedition, a, a crime which, if one is found guilty, bears the punishment of death. Paul was a plague. And the only way to deal with a plague is by killing it. Now you can see once you put this all together, this Tertullus, he, he, he presents a pretty strong case, does he not? I mean, Paul had a track record of causing riots. Paul was a ringleader for a sect following this Jesus of Nazareth, a man who himself had been convicted of sedition. Paul started a riot in Jerusalem when he attempted to desecrate the temple. I mean, what more evidence do you need? Paul was a plague. And yet, as Solomon once said, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And what we will discover is that once Paul speaks... All these facts that Tertullus presents, this seemingly strong case well, will begin to crumble. For, for when the truth is presented in a clear light, this charge of sedition becomes very, very erroneous. Look look at Paul's defense. Look at verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And so we see here that Paul, too, is is skilled in the art of lawyering. For, for, For we see that he also knew how to give a compliment to the one who was to decide his case. Paul demonstrates his confidence in Felix, that he is this wise judge Someone who, who would be able to see through all the falsehoods and, and get to the truth. And just like Tertullus, Paul, Paul would argue for one point. That these disputes that had that been brought before Felix, well, they were not matters of sedition against Rome. Rather, they were matters of religious differences within the Jewish faith. And Paul had facts to back this up. Let's go through these, these facts step by step to see how this is so. Look at, look at verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And so point number one, Paul had only been in Jerusalem for a very short period of time, stating that he had arrived only 12 days prior. And, and in reality, he, he really only had seven days before he was arrested which left him little time to to gather a following or to organize some sort of rebellion. And so he did not attempt or even have the time to organize any type of seditious act. And yet Paul has even more to say. Look at verses 12 and 13. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or, or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. And so Paul was now stating the the evidence that that while he was in Jerusalem, he had not engaged in any arguments or in any debates. In fact, as far as we can tell, the the only public speaking that that Paul had engaged before he was arrested was when he met with James and the church elders to give his missionary report. And so he wasn't trying to rile up the people. He, He wasn't trying to cause any riots. And these men had no evidence they even hinted at this. But there's more. Look, look at verses 14 through 16. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection about the just, and the unjust, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And so, point number three: Paul was not some ringleader of a seditious cult, as these men claimed. Yes, Paul admitted that he was he, he belonged to the way, and yet he was committed to the same God as his forefathers were, the God of the Scriptures. In fact, Paul believed in everything that God's word says. And he had the same hope that all Jewish people do. That there will be a resurrection of the dead. Now it is at this point that I I wonder if Paul was trying to bait his accusers as they would have been from the Sadducee party and didn't believe in all of God's word. Yes, they, they 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 believed in the law, the first five books of Moses, as God's word. But they couldn't say the same when it came to the prophets. And if you remember, these Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection either. And yet for some reason, Paul was stating here that these men accepted these things. Now why would he do this? Here's the thing. If Paul could have gotten them to debate with him over these matters, well, that would have simply proven his point. That he had been arrested over these religious differences and not because of seditious acts. And yet it seems that these men did not bite. And my guess is that this Tertullus, this capable lawyer, was able to restrain these men from taking the bait. Let's continue. Look at, look at verse verses 17 and 18. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. And here Paul speaks to the purpose of visiting Jerusalem to begin with. He, 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 was, he was bringing a gift to the church And to give offerings to his God. In fact, it had been the churches in Macedonia, in Achaia, in Asia. That that had made this collection in order to help out the churches that were struggling in Judea. And so Paul did not come to the city of Jerusalem with some vile purpose. Rather, he came on a journey of mercy. He had come to bring relief to his people. And more than this, the fact that Paul had gone through the seven-day ritual of purification before he even attempted to enter the temple demonstrates the falsehood of of these men's claims. Paul did not come to profane or to desecrate the temple. Rather, he came to honor God by making offerings. And more than that, the fact that he was by himself when they had apprehended him proved that he was... Not organizing a crowd, nor was he trying to stir up any riot. <clears throat> rather it was the others who were doing the stirring, right? Look, look, look at our next verses. But some of the Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make accusations should they have anything against me. Those others who were who were stirring the crowd, those were the Jews from Asia. They should have been the ones who were testifying at that moment. And yet they were nowhere to be found. Now this was a, a major flaw in Tertullus's case. For he could not produce the eyewitnesses who had first accused Paul of these things. Plus, if, if Tertullus wanted to prove that, that Paul had been causing riots all around the Roman world, well, well, then wouldn't it make sense to have these Jews from Asia right there to bring their testimony? In other words, Tertullus, yes, he brought the charges, but he forgot to bring the evidence. He forgot to bring the eyewitnesses. Well, Paul then closes his defense by suggesting that there might be some other charge that had truly angered them. Perhaps they should bring that charge before Felix. Look at verses 20 and 21. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. There was truly one charge that they might be able to bring forward, which was the statement that Paul had made while he was before the Sanhedrin after he had been arrested. The statement that it was on account of his belief in the resurrection of the dead that he was standing trial before them. I mean, this just simply proved that that this was a matter of religious differences and not about sedition. Well, Paul's defense had come to a close, and now that both sides had given their testimony, it would be up to Felix to decide this case. What would the governor do? Would he convict Paul of sedition and and sentence him to death? Would he dismiss the case altogether and allow Paul to go free? Or would there be some other verdict that he would render? Let's find out. Look Look at our last two verses. Look at verses 22 and 23. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying... When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he would be kept in custody and have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Felix was unwilling to announce a verdict. Paul was neither innocent nor was he guilty. Instead, Felix would delay his decision until Claudius Lysias had come, as he wanted to gain the opinion of an unbiased eyewitness. I mean, after all, it was Claudius who had broken up this riot. Certainly he would know who had caused that disturbance. But then there's this other intriguing detail that Luke informs us of that Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Meaning that Felix knew of the Christian faith and of what they believed. And why would he not? For he had been governing over Judea for the past five years. Surely he would have had some run-ins with these followers of the way. Plus, Felix's wife, who we'll meet next Sunday... She was a Jew. And so he wasn't ignorant when it came to all the religious differences between all the varying sects within Judaism. And so he, he had to have known what was really going on. That it had nothing to do with seditious acts, but that, that Paul was correct in what he was saying. That this was all about religious differences. And yet if Felix knew this, then why didn't he declare Paul as innocent? Well, here's the thing. Felix had been put in a tight spot. He he knew that Paul was innocent, and yet the brokers at the table were powerful. He knew as well that if he wanted to maintain peace within Jerusalem... Well, then he would need to appease those who were at the top of the feeding chain. The fact that the chief priest, Ananias, had made the trip to Caesarea spoke volumes. This man's hatred towards Paul was great enough that he took the effort to travel those 70 miles for this trial. And if Felix would have released Paul, well, then he would have created for himself a powerful, powerful enemy. And yet, in the same breath, this this Christian sect was growing rapidly. I don't know if you remember when Paul gave his missionary report, what did the elders tell him? They had been experiencing great growth within Jerusalem. And so, Felix did not want to execute the leader of this way, right? Of those who followed Jesus. And so in a move of political expediency, Felix tried to appease both sides. And thus we see this de- delay in his decision. So, so what's the point of all this? I mean, why did God choose to give us this account in his work? Well, there are a number of reasons, but I, but I believe the main purpose comes down to the question that I had put forth at the beginning of my sermon. What does it look like when an uncompromising Christian life meets up with an unbelieving and uncompromising world? And I believe the answer goes like this. Wherever you find an uncompromising Christian life, there you will also find the attacks from an unbelieving and uncompromising world. And why? Because an uncompromising world views an uncompromising Christian life as a plague. As a pestilence. As something that needs to be snuffed out and destroyed. And they will use whatever means they have at their disposal to get rid of you. For that boy, Alexamenos, that meant being shamed through the use of graffiti. For the Apostle Paul, that meant having enemies who wanted to see him dead. It meant being physically attacked. It meant people taking an oath to assassinate him. It meant facing trumped-up charges of sedition and having your life being decided by a governor who did not fear God. Here's the thing. If you are going to live an uncompromising Christian life, then there is going to come a day when you may find yourself facing formidable opponents, men like Ananias and Tertullus, men who are competent, men who know what they are doing, and who want nothing more than your harm. And just like Ananias and Tertullus, they will twist the truth to get what they want. They will exaggerate to make you look like the villain. They'll put forth these unsubstantiated and vague accusations to get the rest of the world to hate you. And and they will conspire together to do this, right? And all because they view you as a plague. But here's what you need to understand. If you're going to live an uncompromised Christian life, Well, there are some takeaways that you can grab hold of. And the first one is that this really isn't about you. It's about Jesus. Yes, their hatred is directed towards you, but don't be fooled. The one whom they truly loathe is Jesus Christ. And yet, because they cannot touch him, they will touch his servants instead. Takeaway number two, no matter what they do to you, no matter how they treat you, the world will never be able to overcome the will of Jesus. And if Jesus is not ready to let you go, well, then they cannot touch you. You see, Jesus was not yet ready to have Paul become a martyr. He had other plans for his apostles. Yet Paul would have to be imprisoned in order to accomplish the task that Jesus had set before him, and this leads into our third takeaway: that that your suffering will always lead to gospel opportunity. Your suffering will always lead to gospel opportunity. We'll find out next Sunday that the decision that Felix had made to to keep Paul behind bars, well, that would actually lead to Paul becoming a witness to him and really to the whole household within the governor's palace. And that's because King Jesus had his man exactly where he wanted him. And yet we must ask the question, why? Why was Paul there to begin with? Paul was only there because he was willing to suffer. And this is our fourth takeaway. To live an uncompromising Christian life, you must be willing to suffer for Jesus. Did you catch that? To live an uncompromising Christian life, you must be willing to suffer for Jesus. Remember, Paul knew that when he went to Jerusalem, afflictions and imprisonment awaited him. The Holy Spirit had told him this. And yet Paul chose to go. Even when all the other Christians were pleading with him, do not go. Paul chose to go. He went to Jerusalem knowing full well that it was the Lord's will for him to suffer. And that same choice is before each and every one of us who wants to live an uncompromising Christian life. There needs to be this readiness to endure hardship for the sake of your king. You must be willing to suffer for Jesus. Dear friends, Jesus has called you to pick up your cross and to follow him. And that means being viewed as a plague by an unbelieving and uncompromising world. It means being attacked because you have opened your mouth and have proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord. But that's what it takes to live an uncompromising Christian life. It means that in this world, you will have trouble. Look at John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. He he is ruling right now, even as we speak. This means that there is nothing that the world can do to you that is outside of Christ's will. Paul was in prison because Jesus wanted him to be in prison. And Jesus has positioned you where you are at in order to accomplish the specific tasks that he has placed before you. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And because he has overcome the world, we too are now able to overcome the world. For he has empowered us. Empowered us through his Holy Spirit. I mean, that's what this book of Acts has been all about, has it not? Dear friends, the the, the time for fear, the, the time for bashfulness is over. It is time for us to live that uncompromising Christian life. It is time for Christ's church to wake up. I mean, ask yourself who who are the people whom God has placed in your life who need to hear the message of Jesus? Why are you not telling them? It's time to make waves, it's time to rock the boat. It's time to be brave. It's time to be bold. It's time to be willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. It's time to become a plague to an unbelieving and uncompromising world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this day knowing that We have not yet faced the full extent of the tribulation that we could be facing if we were living an uncompromising Christian life. And so we ask you that you would change us. Help us not to fear the world any longer because we know that you have overcome the world. Help us to become so vocal about Jesus that that we will be seen as a plague before those who refuse to repent. We can only do this by the power of your Holy Spirit, so we ask that you would change us from within, that you would shape us, that you would mold us into bold witnesses for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.